Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Monday the 14th of September 1987 a day that would go down as one of the worst days in Biloxi, Mississippi history. In a tale of the Mafia, a conspiracy, a scam, and a double homicide, let's discuss the case of Judge Vincent Sherry and his wife, Margaret Sherry. Judge Vincent Jeremy Sherry Jr. was born in Brooklyn, New York on Sunday the 10th of February 1929 to parents Vincent Sherry Sr., a commercial salesman, and Cleo Sherry. There isn't much publicly known about Vincent's upbringing, though what we do know is that in his early 20s, he began dating a young woman named Margaret Joyce Smith. When Vincent was 21 years old, on the 22nd of November 1950, he married Margaret in a ceremony surrounded by their family and friends. Margaret Joyce Smith had been born on the 10th of July 1929 in Mooring Sports, Louisiana, to parents Bernie Smith Sr. and Ruby Smith. Margaret was actually the youngest of three children, having two older brothers, Bernie Jr. and Charles. Despite being born in Louisiana, Margaret was actually raised in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Following her high school education, she went on to study and subsequently graduated from Western Kentucky State College, and soon thereafter found work as a teacher. Margaret had met Vincent at Western Kentucky State College when they were both students there. Vincent would actually go on to earn degrees from three other universities, Middle Tennessee State College, the University of Southern Mississippi, and his law degree from Washington University Law School. After Margaret had married Vincent, the couple had four children together. Their first child, a daughter born in 1952, two years after the pair had married, who they named Lynn, followed by a son called Vincent Sherry III, then another son who they named Eric, and finally another daughter who they called Leslie. In November of 1951, Vincent enrolled and began serving in the United States Air Force as an intelligence officer for seven years up until 1958, before accepting the job as a judge advocate for the Air Force. A judge advocate is, in essence, a barrister who advises a court-martial on points of law and 
sums up the case. The now Colonel Vincent Sherry served as a judge advocate for 13 years, leaving the Air Force in November of 1971, after which he returned to Biloxi, Mississippi, and began work at a local law firm there, while also teaching political science and criminal justice at the University of Southern Mississippi. Meanwhile, Margaret had been extremely active in politics and was actually elected to the Biloxi City Council as Ward VII. She also served as a District 5 representative to the Harrison County Republican Executive Committee. In 1985, after a lengthy campaign to become the mayor of Biloxi, Margaret sadly lost at the polls with just a 500 vote margin but she didn't give up hope. Margaret refused to stand down. She frequently attended council meetings to oppose the newly elected mayor, Mayor Blessy, and to block his proposals and bond issues. Mayor Blessy could easily be pinned as one of Margaret's political enemies. She quickly became more and more determined to become the mayor of Biloxi, making no secrets of her intentions, and began to plan her campaign for the next election in 1989. Margaret had stumbled across some information that had led her to believe that there was corruption in the Biloxi City Governance Committee, and and she believes that once she had gathered enough evidence and after exposing the corruption to the public, she would win the next mayor election by a landslide. Margaret was extremely confident about winning the next election and had actually been working alongside the FBI to document the corruption in Biloxi governing bodies. But that winning day would never come for Margaret Sherry or her husband, the now circuit's court judge, Vincent Sherry. On the morning of Wednesday, the 16th of September, 1987, Judge Vincent Sherry was due to appear in court to oversee the proceedings of a case, though he failed to show up. This was extremely unlike Judge Vincent. He was always the kind of person to call ahead or send word if he knew that he would be unable to attend an appointment, let alone attend court. The staff at the court phoned Judge Vincent's landline phone repeatedly in an attempt to get a hold of him, but their calls went unanswered and to voicemail. Due to the lack of response, the staff at the court phoned up one of Judge Vincent's closest friends and former law partner, Peter Hallett. Peter told the members of the court that he hadn't heard from the judge in a few days and agreed that it was strange for him to have not shown up to a scheduled court session. So he told the staff over the phone that he would try to phone him and find out where exactly he was. He left a message on the Sherry Landline voicemail expressing his concern for their well-being before deciding that it would be far easier if he were to go to the family home personally and speak with them in person. Peter asked his junior partner Charles to come with him just in case the Sherry family needed any help or anything like that. On the journey from Peter's office to the Sherry family home, his junior partner Charles attempted to make conversation with Peter only to be met with distant replies. Charles assuming that Peter was overcome with concern and worry for his non-respondent close friends. When their car turned the corner onto the streets where the Sherrys lived, both Charles and Peter noted that Judge Vincent and Margaret Sherry's cars were still parked on the driveway. Peter had theorized that perhaps the Sherry couple had been held up at their daughter's home as they had been set to visit the day before, but with both their cars parked in the driveway, they knew something was seriously wrong. Peter told his junior partner, Charles, to go and knock on the door of the Sherry's, while he went to the neighbors to ask if they'd seen or heard from the couple recently. And so Peter walked over to their next door neighbors, who told him that they hadn't seen the Sherry's for a few days. This was while Charles rang the doorbell of the Sherry family home, but nobody answered. That was when Charles realized that the front door of the Sherry's home was actually open, and on the floor by his feet, Charles noted that two morning papers hadn't been collected. Charles then pushed the front door open, 
and realising that something was extremely wrong, he shouted at Peter for him to come over, and when he did, Peter entered the Sherry home. After only taking a few steps into the home, Peter saw his close friend and former law partner lying on his back in the living room. He had been shot multiple times and was sadly dead. Peter then turned around and rushed back out of the house. And when Charles asked him what was wrong, Peter told him that Judge Vincent and his wife, Margaret Sherry, had been murdered. They swiftly phoned for the police. After the police arrived on the scene, the investigators discovered the gunned down remains of Judge Vincent in the living room at the front of the house and the body of Margaret Sherry in the upstairs back bedroom who had also been fatally shot. Due to the judges standing in the community and due to Margaret's running for mayor, the double homicide was quickly upgraded to the highest priority. The FBI's Biloxi field office was promptly contacted, though they were not officially involved in the investigation, and only offered the use of their FBI agents to aid the local authorities. Who had murdered 58-year-old Judge Vincent Sherry and his wife, 58-year-old Mayor Candidate Margaret Sherry? and why. Both Vincent and Margaret had been shot execution style with four gunshot wounds to the head. Upon examination, the investigators discovered next to no forensic evidence within the Sherry home. No fingerprints, no strands of hair, nothing that could give them any indication of who might have been responsible for the attacks. They did initially discover small pieces of foam rubber in the den of the house, the room where Judge Vincent had been murdered, though they couldn't figure out why or how the foam rubber had gotten there. Upon examination of the back upstairs bedroom where Margaret Sherry had been killed, they discovered more small pieces of foam rubber. The forensics team scoured through the house to try and determine whether any objects within the home, albeit furniture or otherwise, was made using this foam rubber, but they couldn't find a source anywhere. This led detectives to one conclusion. The foam rubber had been brought into the home and was likely used by their attacker as a makeshift silencer. Forensics located nine spent 22 caliber shell casings, which gave the investigators a clue as to the weapon that had been used in the attacks. A 22 caliber weapon, which is of a small caliber, requires highly trained accuracy to deliver a fatal shot. The bullets are small enough to penetrate a skull, but its low velocity would see it create hardly any exit wounds. The weapon would also have been considerably quieter, especially with the makeshift silencer. Due to the inability to fully pass through a victim, the bullets would ricochet inside the body, causing extensive damage to internal organs, or in this case, the brain. It was quickly determined that the fatal shots had been fired in quick succession in pairs, and one of the shots, the ninth shot, had been a missed shot. The investigators searched through the Sherry home to try and determine whether anything had been taken, and they found nothing to be out of place. Judge Vincent's wallet was still in his back pocket. Margaret's purse hadn't been taken and neither had her credit cards or money that were inside of it. The family safe had also been left untouched. It was clear that the motive for the murders was not burglary or robbery. The lack of real forensic evidence, the DIY gun silencer and the executioner style killings meant one thing to the investigators. This wasn't a robbery gone wrong, it was a professional hit. The Biloxi police sent the evidence to the local FBI field agents who agreed that it was a professional hit job, an assassination. After all, Judge Vincent had likely sentenced a criminal or two to prison that might have outside connections, and Margaret was about to expose corruption within the local police and governing bodies to kickstart her election campaign. But who was the target? The detectives learnt that Judge Vincent went for regular morning and evening jogs, which meant that if he were the sole target of the attacks, then why wasn't he killed during one of these runs? 
Why was Margaret killed? Unless she was the primary target and Judge Vincent was collateral. The investigators turned their attention to Margaret's mayor campaign and to her stance on the gambling and strip clubs in the town, which she wanted to work to shut down. This would not only lead to a loss of jobs of the people that worked in that sector, but would also mean a severe loss of revenue for the Dixie Mafia. According to the FBI, the Dixie Mafia is a loosely knit group of traveling criminals performing residential burglary, robbery, and thefts based on what was called the Strip, which is a string of seedy bars, strip joints, and gambling parlors that flourished along Mississippi's Gulf Coast, where Biloxi was located, from the 1960s to the 1980s. It was out of control, said retired special agent Keith Bell, referring to the level of corruption in Biloxi and Harrison County. So much so that in 1983, federal authorities would designate the entire Harrison County Sheriff Office as a criminal enterprise. Special Agent Royce Highnight initiated the investigation of the sheriff and was soon joined by Bell. They were doing anything and everything illegal down here, said Bell, who grew up on the Gulf Coast. For money, the sheriff and the officers loyal to him would release prisoners from the county jail, safeguard drug shipments and hide fugitives. Anything you can think of, they were involved in. Bell is quick to point out that there were plenty of honest officers on the force and some would later help the FBI put an end to the culture of corruption in Biloxi. But for a long time, Sheriff Leroy Hobbs and his Dixie Mafia associates held sway. And when word got out that Biloxi, with its history of strip clubs and illicit gambling, was a safe haven, the criminals settled in. Margaret wanted to get gambling out of Biloxi and was very outspoken about her anti-gambling stance. Part of her campaign, if she were to be elected mayor, would be to shut down the remaining gambling establishments in Biloxi. This could have seen her with many political and criminal enemies that would do anything to prevent her from getting into power. Investigators speculated that Margaret had been the target, her murder to silence her and prevent her from closing down gambling in the town and the strip joints, with Judge Vincent simply being collateral. Detectives decided to begin investigating Margaret's political rivals and enemies, as well as interviewing and speaking with their neighbours and friends to see whether they could ascertain any more information about who might be responsible. Though everybody the police spoke with were reluctant and hesitant to give up any information at all to the authorities, out of fear that they might make themselves the targets of the next attack by the local criminal scene or the Dixie Mafia. Nobody wanted to be associated with the case due to this fear. On the day Judge Vincent's and Margaret's bodies were discovered, at 2.10pm, their eldest daughter Lynn received a phone call to her home phone from her younger brother Eric. The call would be an event that would change her life irreversibly and turn it into a living nightmare. Her younger brother told her that their parents had been murdered, and that she needed to get to Biloxi as quickly as possible. Lynn's involvement in the investigation would be the pinnacle in figuring out who exactly had been responsible for her parents' deaths. The day after Vincent Sherry and Margaret Sherry's bodies were discovered, Lynn and her family arrived at the airport just outside of Biloxi. According to the book Mississippi Mud, written by Edward Humes, which features interviews with the family surrounding this case and which has been an extremely valuable resource in researching this case, Lynn and her three children had been greeted by her brother Eric and sister Leslie at the airport, and they drove in silence through the city of Biloxi. They had been asked by the investigators to immediately go to the police station upon their arrival in Biloxi, though they instead went to Peter Hallett's office, 
Judge Vincent's close friend and former law partner who had discovered their bodies, as he had told the family that before they went anywhere, they had to go and talk to him. Lynn dropped off two of her children with a family friend on the way to Peter's office. Peter had spoken to Eric Sherry, one of the Sherry children, on the phone the night before, and had promised that he would use his contacts to try and figure out what happened to the Sherry parents and why it happened. Lynn, Eric, Leslie and Lynn's daughter Kathy arrived at Peter's office and were greeted with his condolences for their loss. He expressed how devastated he was at the loss of his closest friends, hugging each member of the Sherry family. Peter then brought the family into the law library for a private talk. Sitting at a library table, Eric began to ask Peter what he'd found out, but Peter cut him off. According to the Mississippi Mud, Peter told the family, Listen, there's something you need to understand. There is nothing you can do to bring your parents back to life. Nothing. The best you can do is drop it. This shocks and confused the family. What had Peter uncovered that made him tell them to drop their search for answers for their murdered loved ones? Lynn asked whether Peter had learnt that the current mayor of Biloxi, Mayor Blessy, was involved in the killings, but Peter refused to elaborate. He straight up told the grieving family to drop it, mourn their parents, then go home and get on with living for their own good. Lynn, her brother Eric, her sister Leslie, and Lynn's daughter Kathy left Peter's office confused and with even more questions, and made their way to the police station. Interestingly, the police decided to individually interview the family rather than interview them as a whole, this is of particular note as this technique is used more for when the investigators want to interview suspects rather than when they want to speak to a mourning and grieving family. Regardless, the investigators learned of an important piece of information through these interviews. Judge Vincent almost religiously carried a black appointment book. According to the book, Mississippi Mud, in an interview with Leslie Sherry, Leslie had told the investigators, his black book went with him wherever he went, cause as intelligent as he was, he was scatterbrained, and he needed his book to know where he was supposed to be. It's important to note that Peter Hallett didn't once mention this black book to the authorities in any of his interviews, a book that he would have definitely known about, and something that would have been able to show who exactly Vincent had planned to meet on the day he and his wife were killed. Interestingly, the detectives hadn't uncovered Vincent's black book in any of their searches of the Sherry home, though perhaps it was just hidden under some papers, but I would imagine that such an important book would be kept close to Vincent's person. This all meant one thing. The killer or killers had taken this black book. The book was gone. Perhaps this book detailed who the killer was, who Vincent had intended to meet that fateful day, who he had dinner with. It quickly became imperative that the investigators locate this black book. However, they never did. Further adding to this theory that it had been a friend that had been the killer was the two dachshund dogs that Vincent and Margaret Sherry owned. These two dogs were very protective of their owners, though would be very friendly to people they recognised. Only a friend would have been able to get past the dogs without being bitten or anything like that. When Peter Hallett had discovered the Sherry murders, the dogs had reacted friendly towards him, but when the police officers arrived to investigate the crime scene, the dogs barked at them and bore their teeth. Peter's description of what he saw when he entered the house was also of particular note in this case. He described looking through the glass of the front door and seeing the Sherry's dogs in the house, along with dog excrements on the rug of the main room. This was an immediate red flag to Peter as the Sherry's would have punished and cleaned up the excrements. Peter then stated that he himself then tried the door, opening the latch in an attempt to see if the front door was unlocked. And when the door opened, Peter stated that a foul odour met him as he entered the house. That was when he saw Vincent Sherry lying on the floor on his back. Peter had actually told the Sherry children that he had only seen the bottom half of Vincent's body before he turned and fled the house. 
However, he actually told the authorities that he had seen Vincent's entire body and had even accurately described the position of Vincent in the room. Peter had also told the Sherry children that he had accidentally pushed open the front door to the house, but he told the police that he had opened the front door purposefully. And we also know that Charles, his junior um, law partner, also opened the door. So there was three conflicting stories there. Despite these inconsistencies, the authorities had been satisfied so much with Peter's statement to them that they only had a quick chat with the junior law partner that had accompanied him to the house on the day the bodies were discovered. They didn't take a statement from Charles, the junior law partner, or anything like that, a fact that we'll come back to later on in this episode. Peter had actually delivered the eulogy at Vincent and Margaret's funeral, and this eulogy is, in my opinion, quite strange. He spoke of his anger, frustration, and sorrow at the loss of his close friends. He spoke of how he considered the Sherrys to be family, and praised all their life achievements and accomplishments. The strange part to me was the closing of this speech, where he said, I believe Margaret would like to be remembered as a leader who was more interested in the people than in personal gain. And I believe she would want us to continue her good fights for honest, open, and accountable governments. The Sherry children instantly knew what this closing statement meant. Peter Hallett had announced that he was running for mayor during the eulogy of their parents' funerals. Following the service, Peter handed out printed copies of the eulogy to the press and media that had gathered. He smiled as he handed the transcripts out, the transcripts in which he announces that he's running for mayor. Now, the investigating officers did actually at one point investigate Peter Hallett as a potential suspect. After all, he was the last person to see the Sherrys alive, and he was the person to discover their bodies though the investigators were completely unable to determine a potential motive for Peter being responsible. Peter wouldn't have received any financial gain from their deaths, and their passing was determined to likely have a negative impact on Peter's law practice, as Judge Vincent Sherry recommended it and was a part of it, and I believe co-owns the law practice, so with Judge Vincent Sherry dead, it would have a detrimental impact to the operation of the business. Due to this lack of motive, Peter was cleared as a suspect and the police moved on to investigating other leads. But who exactly was Peter Hallett? Peter J. Hallett Jr. was born on the 27th of July, 1942 and had become law partners with Vincent in 1981. I couldn't find much more information online about Peter's upbringing or life outside of the case, but we do know that for certain he had been a very close friend uh, with Vincent and Margaret for a considerable period of time. Though, as I said, Peter was cleared as a suspect in this case by the investigators. Police then began to turn their attention to other potential suspects, looking in particularly at Judge Vincent's previous clients. Most notably, they learnt of a woman named Betty Inman, known as Diamond Betsy, who had been a cocaine smuggler. Judge Vincent had represented Diamond Betsy in the court of law, and had attempted to get a reduced sentence for her. Now, interestingly, Diamond Betsy had a sexual interest in Judge Vincent, and had oftentimes told Vincent that he should leave his wife Margaret and run off with her, a proposal that Judge Vincent politely turned down every time. Despite Vincent's best efforts, Diamond Betsy was sentenced to a prison sentence, and as a result of this, she believed that Vincent had betrayed her. From behind bars, informants had overheard Diamond Betsy saying that she would kill Vincent if she had the chance. Though Diamond Betsy had been in prison at the time of the Sherry murders, a concrete alibi. But what if she had someone on the outside to help her? A question that played on the mind of the investigators as they continued searching for leads in this case. The Sherry children themselves had a theory as to who might have been responsible for their parents' deaths. They believed that Mayor Blessy had been responsible. 
After all, Mayor Blessy was considered to be Margaret's political enemy, somebody who would likely win against him in the next mayor election. This is where the case gets a bit strange. When the police had been informed of the Sherry Children's theory, they completely ignored it. At a press conference, the director of public safety told the media that politics had nothing to do with the killings with Mayor Blessy sat right next to him. Mayor Blessy had given the authorities an alibi. He said that he'd been out of town when the murders had taken place. And when the sheriff's detective, an investigator that doesn't directly work for the government of the town, went to question Mayor Blessy as routine when following these kind of leads, the sheriff's detective was told not to pursue it. Despite the Sherry family's suspicions, the sheriff's detectives concluded that there was absolutely no evidence that linked the mayor to the killings. The investigators, with no new leads, decided to turn their attention to the theory that it might have been one of the Sherry children that could have carried out the killings. Detectives brought Lynn Sherry in for questioning and asked her whether all the Sherry children were biologically related to Vincent and Margaret. This was when one of the Sherry family's deeper secrets would reveal itself. As it turned out, Eric Sherry had actually been adopted by Vincent and Margaret, and he didn't know it. The police speculated that Eric might have learnt of his adoption, and in anger, he had murdered his parents. Lynn had been around seven or eight when Eric had been adopted into the family, so it was a secret that only she and her parents knew of. You see, Eric had actually been the son of Margaret's brother, who had given up his newborn child due to some very unfortunate circumstances that are outside the scope of this episode. But regardless, Vincent and Margaret welcomed Eric into their family and treated him as if he was their own. After Eric had grown up, Vincent and Margaret had been unable to bring themselves to tell Eric who his biological parents were. Lynn told the authorities that this theory was plausible, though, as she had also known of Eric's adoption, why had he not carried out the same violent anger against her? Further, there was no evidence to support this theory at all. Also, Eric straight up didn't know that he was adopted, as it would later emerge. And Lynn assured authorities that he truly wasn't aware. But the police were persistent. For Eric to clear his name, he would have to give the police a credible alibi. It had emerged that Eric had actually planned a trip to New Orleans on the Gulf Coast, not far from Biloxi, about just over an hour's drive, at the time that his parents were murdered. Though, upon questioning, the investigators learnt that Eric's trip had fallen through, as he had been shifted to work at his job in Florida on the dates he had planned to make the journey. When asked why Eric hadn't told the authorities about this planned trip during his initial interviews, he said that he didn't think it was worth mentioning. Detectives were suspicious of Eric, and subsequently the investigators asked Eric to undergo a polygraph examination. If you've been on my channel before, you'll know my stance on polygraph tests and their inaccuracies. And Lynn knew that these polygraph tests can be largely inaccurate. She knew that if they made Eric undergo a polygraph test and asked him about his adoption, he'd freak out and cause a incredible correct results. And on top of that, Eric was in a highly emotional state while grieving the sudden loss of his parents, which could also be a factor that can manipulate the polygraph results. Lynn and Eric were very uneasy at the idea of the polygraph test, and so Lynn proposed a plan. Lynn told the sheriff's detective, Detective Broussard, that Eric would agree to undergo the polygraph test only if Mayor Blessy also underwent a polygraph test. Lynn only wanted to ask Mayor Blessy who the Sherry children suspected of being involved in their parents' murders, two questions. The first question, do you know who killed Margaret and Vincent Sherry? The second, do you have any knowledge of any illegal activity on the Gulf Coast that could have contributed to their deaths. Detective Broussard accepted Lynn's plan and travelled to Mayor Blessy's office to put in the request. Later that same day, Detective Broussard phones Lynn laughing, saying that Eric wouldn't be taking the polygraph test. As Mayor Blessy had responded to the detective by saying, I will not take a polygraph, I will not be questioned, and I will not be considered a suspect. 
now get the hell out of my office. Though, in an even more suspicious turn of events, a few days after Detective Broussard had made the request to Mayor Blessy, he was ordered off the Sherry murders case. The detective had been summoned into the Chief Deputy Sheriff's office and told that Mayor Blessy had called and demanded he be removed from the investigation, and so he was. What was Mayor Blessy hiding? Or was he just offended at the idea that police were exploring him as a suspect? This further added to the Sherry children's suspicions that the mayor was somehow implicated. The Sherry children were then finally permitted to enter the crime scene, their parents' home. And when they did, they made a breakthrough discovery. Lynn walked straight into the kitchen and picked up a plastic seven-day pill dispenser. The plastic container was her mother's, and it contained her blood pressure and thyroid medication. Medication which Margaret Sherry was always sure to take. Lynn made a startling announcement when she opened the container. They were dead Monday night by 10 o'clock. Lynn knew that her parents were both creatures of habit and that her mother took medication in both the morning and evening. She would take her morning medication right after she woke up and her evening medication right after the 10 o'clock news, a television program which they never missed. The pillbox shows that Margaret had taken all her medication on the Sunday, both morning and evening, and it shows that she'd also taken her Monday morning medication too, though two pills still remained in the container for the evening dosage for Monday the 14th of September. This breakthrough, which was shockingly missed by the investigators, confirms that Vincent and Margaret Sherry were dead by 10pm that Monday, 10.30pm at the latest. The investigators had actually uncovered the movements of Vincent and Margaret on that Monday early on in the investigation. They had been last seen outside their home at around 5.30pm, Vincent had actually picked up, according to the Mississippi Mud, three dozen sandwiches at the local airbase to bring to the home of a fellow judge whose father had sadly recently passed away. After delivering the sandwiches, Vincent then returned to the airbase for a haircut using his veterans' discounts before stopping by the law office to have a chat with Peter Hallett. Following that, Vincent filled up his car before returning home. And after that, Vincent's movements were unknown. Margaret had actually been sighted around the same time as Vincent's. She had bought two calculators at a nearby shop. A receipt found at the crime scene placed the purchase at around 6.30pm that day. Margaret then made her way home and made several telephone calls to her friends. The last phone call came in at about 7pm that evening, with Margaret speaking with her friend Diane. Though this telephone conversation was cut abruptly short, Diane had heard Vincent complaining about being hungry and not having eaten dinner yet, and just presumes that Margaret had put down the phone in a huff to go make dinner, thinking nothing more of it. This information, along with a new breakthrough found by Lynn, placed a three-hour window between 7pm and 10pm for when the attacks took place. Perhaps Margaret had put down the phone abruptly due to her killer knocking on the door. We won't ever know for sure. Even with all this new information, the investigators still had no meaningful evidence or any clue as to who might have been responsible for the murders. Lynn Sherry had been very open with the police about her mother's work with the FBI to uncover corruption within the Biloxi government, and she had told the authorities that Margaret had actually expressed fears for her own safety and her family's safety shortly before the murders as a result of this FBI investigation. Though when Peter Hallett, who the investigators knew to be very, very close friends to Margaret and Vincent, was questioned about this, he told the authorities that they had never once received any death threats of any kind. And once again, Peter's statements to the police proved to be riddled with inconsistencies. A tape recording of Judge Vincent Sherry talking in court was discovered, in which he speaks about receiving threats on his life. The tape had been dated for the 12th of May 1987, and what Judge Vincent said on these tapes is chilling. I don't have the recording, but according to a transcript in the Mississippi Mud, Judge Vincent told the courtroom, Would you believe, dear lady, that in the past two weeks, I've had an out-of-state threat on my life, 
and an in-city threat on my life. And I know where it's coming from, but I'll see myself in the pits of hell before I'll be afraid of these people. He went on to say when talking to the defendants in the courtroom, Believe me, I identify with you on this business of cheap threats against your life. But as you pointed out to me, he's done it to you once. These clowns that are after me haven't gotten to me yet. This proved without a doubt that Judge Vincent Sherry, at the very least, had been receiving death threats contrary to what Peter had told the police. The case for the investigators, though, began to go cold. But Lynn Sherry refused to give up on her inquiries. As mentioned earlier in this episode, local residents and neighbours of the Sherrys had been hesitant and fearful to speak with the police due to the rumours of criminal involvement. They didn't want to get themselves or their families hurt. But Lynn thought they might open up to her, the grieving daughter of her murdered parents. Lynn spoke to several residents, and one of those conversations would provide further vital information in this case. She spoke with a man who lived on the same street as her parents, whose name I've redacted for privacy reasons. And what this man told Lynn changed everything. The following is an extract from Mississippi Mud, which, as you've probably realised by this point, has been a vital part of the research in this case, and I highly, highly, highly recommend you read the book. It's available on Amazon if you want to further your reading on this case. Lynn started to ask the neighbour if he had seen anything suspicious Monday night or Tuesday morning. The newspaper not the police, having provided the possible time frame for the murders. But the man silenced them. Don't you know what's going on, he asked. Lynn began to think something was wrong with this person. This attempt at amateur detecting was turning into a colossal waste of time. Of course we know, she said patiently, as if speaking to someone impaired. Our parents were shot and killed. No, no, you don't understand, the neighbour said. They were still standing in the entryway and he gave no indication that he was going to invite them any further into the house. He merely said, I saw the guy. What? Lynn barks. What guy? Now the neighbour looked at them like they were idiots. I saw the car, or I saw a car, outside the house that night, Monday night, about 10 o'clock. As soon as I saw it, I thought it looked like a narc car, a yellow Ford Fairmont. Did he tell anyone, Lynn demanded. Did they come around and talk to you? There were supposed to be cops all over this neighbourhood after they found mum and dad. Yeah, they came around. I told them I saw a car, but I didn't, you know, tell them anything much about it. Why not? It was just too much for Lynn. How could someone sit on something like this? The neighbour just shook his head, looking small and scared, and said, Because the cop who came around knocking on my door is the same one that was driving the car. Lynn took this information straight to the sheriff's detectives, telling them that a neighbour had sighted a yellow Ford Fairmont on the streets between 7pm and 10pm the evening her parents had been killed. And it wasn't long before the authorities found the exact vehicle that Lynn had reported. No, they didn't find it after an extensive search but rather entirely by accident. A patrol officer had been driving to an apartment complex for a routine theft report, and when this patrol officer had pulled into the parking lot of the apartment complex, he spotted a yellow Ford Fairmont abandoned in the lot. The car was immediately brought in to undergo forensic examination. It was a 1981 model, and whoever had been driving it was extremely careful to leave no traces behind. The dome light in the car had actually been removed so that no lights inside the car would turn on when the door opened so to conceal the identity of the person inside to nosy neighbours. Police then ran the plates of the vehicle and discovered that the licence plate on the Ford actually belonged to a 1975 Oldsmobile that had been reported as stolen some three years prior to the murders. It was immediately clear that the car had been professionally modified to be disposable in an ordered hit. Forensics did, however, find two partial fingerprints on the left rear door window on the inside of the glass. The fingerprints were complete enough to be positively compared against a suspect's fingerprints if and when the opportunity arose. Forensics also collected hair and fibres from the car that were also sent off for examination. It's important to note that these forensic evidence 
This forensic evidence was never again mentioned in this case. I'm not sure what came of it or whether it was just shelved, but with the level of corruption in this case, it had just been shelved and not followed up. Though, despite this new lead, the authorities actually dropped the investigation into the vehicle as they had wrongly presumed that it had been stolen after the murders had taken place. We'll come back to this later on in the episode. Simultaneously to this investigation, the FBI had been investigating a Lonely Hearts scam. The FBI had discovered personal ads that had been placed in newspapers that were being used to lure straight women and gay men into handing over their money. And this scam had been operating out of a prison. The inmates of the prison paid the guards to use the prison telephones. And through the fake advertisements in homosexual magazines and newspapers, they advertised that they were looking for a new partner to move in with. The people that fell victim to the scam would then send letters to a post box and receive further letters and explicit images in return. Then, all of a sudden, the scammers would write to their victims, telling them a multitude of different lies, stating that they needed money for something, or for some reason or another, and the victims sent them the money. In all, the scam brought in hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the FBI wanted to get to the root of it. Through informants, they learned that an inmate at Louisiana State Penitentiary, who was serving life for murder, had been at the heart of the operation. The inmate was called Kirksey McCord Nix, and when the FBI looked into his call logs, they discovered that he had been making frequent calls to his girlfriend, Lorraine Sharp. And the kicker was, the number that Lorraine Sharp had been receiving these calls on belonged to a law practice in Biloxi, the very same law practice which Peter Halat operated. The FBI contacted the Sheriff's Department in Biloxi to let them know what they had discovered, already being aware that they were looking into the Sherry murders case. The detectives then retrieved the call logs from the law practice to see who else they had been talking with. Off particular notes, they discovered that 345 calls had been placed between the law practice and Kirksey Nix between December of 1986 up until the 15th of September 1987, the day after the Sherrys were murdered. The detectives thought it was very out of the ordinary for a law practice to be having so many telephone conversations with a convicted murderer who had no hopes of an appeal. Interestingly, Kirksey Nix had been linked by the FBI to the Dixie Mafia, the loosely organized criminal gang that operated along the Gulf Coast. By this point in the investigation, Peter Halat had actually run for mayor and won the election, becoming the official mayor of Biloxi. This meant that the detectives were reluctant to investigate this lead further, and so the case went cold again. It wasn't until two years after the murder that the investigation would continue. Lynn Sherry had become increasingly frustrated with the lack of progress in the case and decided to hire a notorious private investigator who had put several Dixie Mafia members behind bars to aid in finding out who had murdered her parents. This private detective began to go through the call logs of Peter and Judge Vincent's law firm. The detective discovered that the money from the Lonely Heart scam that the FBI had been investigating had been funneled through the law firm. This meant that either Judge Vincent or Peter Hallett had been involved in the scam. The private detective shared what he had learnt with the police, and Kirksey Nix became a prime suspect. Though, when he was interrogated by the authorities, he failed to reveal any information or any knowledge of the Sherry murders that hadn't already been reported in the news. Another dead end for the investigation. Lynn knew that the Lonely Heart scam and her parents' murders were highly likely to have been connected, but they were missing that vital connection between the two cases, the string to, to bring them together. At this point in the case, the FBI hadn't become officially involved in the Sherry murders case, but the private investigator had an old friend that worked for the FBI who, after paying him a visit, gave him a lead that could help connect the dots. This lead was an interview with another inmate in the same prison that Kirksey Nix was incarcerated, an inmate who was also involved in the Dixie Mafia. The inmate's name was Bobby Joe Fabian. Bobby told the private investigator in an interview that he hadn't been involved in the Sherry murders, 
but Kirksey Nix had been. He told the investigators that Kirksey Nix had ordered a hit on Judge Vincent Sherry because he believed Vincent had stolen a large sum of money from the Lonely Heart scam operation. If that wasn't enough, Bobby further told the investigator that Kirksey Nix had found out about the theft from none other than the now mayor of Biloxi, Peter Hallett. He reveals that Peter had been involved in the criminal aspect of the scam and had been receiving money for his involvement in the operation. And that wasn't all. Peter Hallett had actually hired Kirksey Nix's girlfriend, Lorraine Sharp, to work in the law practice. Despite Lorraine Sharp not having the credentials for the job position she was given, Bobby reveals that Peter and Lorraine had both been involved in receiving and managing the money made from the scam operation. Peter and Lorraine also kept money aside for Kirksey Nix, which they stored in a safety deposit box. Finally, Bobby also reveals the identity of the suspected hitman that Kirksey Nix had ordered to carry out the killings, John Ransom. All this new information was now enough for the FBI to order a full investigation into the double homicide, as it had federal charges of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud and other charges similar to that. Though Peter Halat, now being the mayor of Biloxi, presented an extremely complicated situation for the FBI. They were unable to disclose information about the case to the local Biloxi authorities due to the fact that they were investigating Peter. The FBI feared corruption within the local government and police could ruin any chances of a successful prosecution. In another twist in this case, in August of 1989, Bobby Fabian, the inmate who had revealed the connection between the Sherry murders and the Lonely Heart scam, conducted a televised interview revealing all he knew. Bobby claimed to have done this so that attention could be brought to him and to prevent Kirksey from ordering a hit on him for talking with the authorities. The news station also broadcast a mugshot of John Ransom on television. While watching the news, Peter Hallett's junior law partner, Charles, who had accompanied Peter to the Sherry home when the bodies were discovered, realized that he had actually seen John Ransom outside the law practice's office in the weeks leading up to the murder. Charles went straight to the authorities with this information. The authorities then began to question Charles more about the day the bodies had been discovered, something that they had failed to do in the immediate investigation two years earlier. This was when an extremely important detail emerged. Peter Hallett had entered the Sherry home for just a brief couple of moments before running back out again and telling him that both Vincent and Margaret were dead, which was of particular note, as it would have been impossible for Peter to have seen Vincent's body, process that, and then go upstairs to the back bedroom and discover Margaret's body before running back down the stairs and outside. Why did he say they were both dead if he had only seen Vincent's body? unless he already knew that the couple had been murdered. It wouldn't be until three years after the killings, in January of 1990, that the final piece of the puzzle fell into place. Another inmate who had been involved in the Dixie Mafia had told the authorities that he had information about the Sherry murders and that he was willing to cooperate. This inmate was a known associate of the alleged hitman who had carried out the attacks, John Ransom, and he had told the authorities that in early 1987, he had been contacted by John Ransom to be the getaway driver in a professional hit job against a judge in Biloxi. He was promised $10,000 in compensation. In March of 1987, this inmate traveled to Biloxi, he hadn't been incarcerated as of yet, to meet with John Ransom, the hitman, and another man called Peter Halat. The inmate then told the authorities that it had been Peter that had been the one to specifically order the hit on Judge Vincent and Margaret, people he called his close friends. Afterwards, the inmates also met with a man called Mike Gillock, who was the owner of a number of strip clubs in the Biloxi area, who had been the one to finance the hit. You see, Mike Gillick had an interest in seeing Margaret dead, as she had been intending to shut down strip clubs and gambling establishments in Biloxi as part of her mayor campaign 
meaning that he would go out of business. In late 1990, the investigators arrested Lorraine Sharp in connection to the murders and interviewed her extensively for more information, and she ultimately gave the authorities what they needed. And now the FBI finally had enough to bring indictments against several of the key players in this case. Mike Gillick, Kirksey Nix, John Ransom, and Lorraine Sharp. Despite these indictments, the FBI still didn't have enough information to arrest Mayor Peter Hallett on murder charges. They still needed to gather more evidence to do so. The trial against Mike Gillick, Kirksey Nix, John Ransom, and Laura Sharp took place in 1991. The prosecution speculated that Kirksey Nix, along with his girlfriend Laura Sharp and Mike Gillick, had hired John Ransom to kill the Sherrys. The inmates that had told authorities that he had been hired to drive the getaway car testified in court John Ransom's involvement in the murders and that John Ransom had told him after the facts that he had actually been the one to murder the Sherrys. During this trial though, Mike Gillick testified that Mayor Peter Hallett had no involvement in either the scam or the murders, which saw the prosecutor not bringing any charges against Peter. The prosecution really needed concrete testimony from one of the convicted um, and indicted key players in this uh, case to bring the charges against Mayor Peter. The jury ultimately convicted Kirksey Nix, Mike Gillick, Larray Sharp, and John Ransom guilty of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Further, they found Kirksey Nix and Mike Gillick guilty of traveling aid of murder for hire. It seems as if Peter Hallett had evaded prosecution. Though in 1994, Mike Gillick accepted a deal with prosecutors for a reduced sentence in return for him giving more evidence in the case. Mike Gillick testified Peter Hallett's involvement in the murders and further told the authorities the true story of what had happened. In December of 1986, Peter had informed Kirksey Nix and Mike Gillick that around 100,000 US dollars had gone missing from Kirksey's safety deposit box and pointed the finger at Judge Vincent Sherry, claiming that he had taken the money. It's important to note that there's no evidence at all to connect Judge Vincent Sherry to the scam. Uh, it's believed that he had no idea that this scam was taking place and it was all happening right under his nose. But as he was a court circuit judge, um, he didn't spend a lot of time in his uh, legal practice. So, you know, he didn't see the goings on. He kind of left it to Peter Hallett to run. As a result of Peter pointing the blame at Judge Vincent, the hit against the Sherry couple was ordered, with Mike paying extra to ensure Margaret was also murdered. But the hitman hadn't been John Ransom, as he had actually gotten cold feet just before the hit was supposed to take place. The hitman had actually been a man called Thomas Holcomb, a contract killer from Texas. This testimony was finally enough evidence to indict Mayor Peter Hallett, as well as bring new indictments against Kirksey Nix, Lorraine Sharp, and now Thomas Holcomb in 1996. After a lengthy trial, the jury began their deliberations on the 11th of July 1997. The jury returned their verdict on the 16th of July, which was actually a partial verdict. They found Kirksey Nix, Lorraine Sharp, and Thomas Holcomb guilty of all the charges brought against them. But they only found Peter Hallett guilty of obstruction of justice and conspiracy to obstruct justice charges. The judge, due to the partial verdict, ordered the jury to go back into deliberation. And they returned the following day on the 17th of July and found Peter Hallett to be further guilty of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and conspiracy to violate the racketeering statutes. There were also murder charges and there was like up to 50 charges within this trial against different people. It was a bit wild and I won't list them all off, but they were all found guilty of being involved in the Sherry murders and being involved in the Lonely Heart scam. Peter Hallett was also disbarred from law and legal practices within the United States for life. Peter received an 18-year sentence in prison, while Kirksey Nix and Thomas Holcomb received life sentences. Lorraine Sharp received five years in prison for her involvement. Mike Gillick was initially uh, sentenced to life imprisonment, but due to his... Um, 
deal that he made with the prosecution, he was actually granted early release from prison, and then in 2012, he died from cancer. Kirksey Nix is still serving his sentence in prison to this day. Thomas Holcomb died in prison in 2005, and Peter Hallett served out his prison sentence and is now living somewhere in Ocean Springs. Lynn has only visited Biloxi twice since the investigations, both times for funerals. And that's everything that I have for you in today's case. What did you think of this case? It's certainly a very complex and long one that is riddled with twists and corruptions and turns. Let me know what you think down in the comments section below. This episode is actually my 100k special and I just want to quickly take this moment to thank all of you for your continued support on this channel and allowing me to bring you these, these short documentaries on these cases and giving a voice to those who might not have a voice anymore. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you're not subscribed to this channel, then make sure that you are and you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post a brand new Curious Case episode just like this one. Don't forget to follow me over on social media. My handles on Twitter and Instagram are both at It's Joshua Miles. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.